Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director at Word on Fire. Bishop Barron is not with us today for this episode, but we're going to be sharing with you a special sample audio lesson from our Word on Fire Institute. Today, we're gonna hear a sample from a course titled Imaginative Apologetics. It's taught inside our institute by Dr. Holly Ordway, one of the leading figures in this conversation between evangelization, imagination, literature, art. The course is all about how to help people find meaning and understand the faith through stories, imagery, metaphor, and more. Um, It's a wonderful course. Thousands of people have already gone through it. Today, we're going to hear lesson number one, which is titled, What is Imaginative Apologetics? And how does it differ from other forms of apologetics, such as those that employ rational argumentation? So I think you're going to love the course. You're definitely going to love Holly. So enjoy lesson one from this course on on imaginative apologetics. Hi, I'm Dr. Holly Ordway. Today, we're going to be talking about imaginative apologetics. Now, imaginative apologetics is the name of our course overall, and our first lesson asks the question, what is imaginative apologetics? And I'll answer that question, but first, I want to tell you two stories. And the first story is about C.S. Lewis, someone whom very likely you've heard a little bit about. Famous author of the Chronicles of Narnia stories, famous author of the apologetics work Mere Christianity, Problem of Pain, The Great Divorce, many other really important works of apologetics. Now, what you might not know is that Lewis was not always a Christian. He actually was an atheist as a young man, having rejected the Christianity of his childhood. And so he became a convert to Christianity as an adult. So we might ask, what brought him to become a Christian? Well, a couple of things happened that are very important. First, while he was still a young man, he had the experience of reading a fantasy novel by an author, George MacDonald. This novel called Fantasties It's a fantasy novel, and it doesn't have anything, obviously, to do with Christianity. There's no mention of Christ or the church, the Bible, or anything. But what it does have is what Lewis would later call the bright shadow of holiness infused in the story. And Lewis later wrote that this effectively baptized his imagination, although, as he said, the rest of him took a little longer. So he had his imagination prepared for the idea of the faith. And then later, as a young man at Oxford, um, getting his degree there, he became convinced on philosophical grounds that God existed. So Lewis became a theist. That is to say, he believed in God. But that didn't make him a Christian. After his conversion to theism, which was in 1931 he wrote that he was still held back from being a Christian. And in a letter to one of his friends, he said, what has been holding me back has not been so much a difficulty in believing as a difficulty in knowing what the doctrine meant. You can't believe a thing while you're ignorant what the thing is. Now, this is significant because Lewis didn't have an issue with the concepts of Christianity 
or the doctrines, he couldn't get the meaning of it. He couldn't kind of wrap his mind around it. Now, a little while later in that same year, he had a famous walk on the grounds of Magdalen College, Oxford, in this path called Addison's Walk, with his friends J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, far in the future at that point, and Hugo Dyson. And they talked to him, and they addressed some of Lewis's issues. And what Lewis later wrote was this. Now, what Dyson and Tolkien showed me was this, that if I met the idea of sacrifice in a pagan story, I liked it very much and was mysteriously moved by it. Again, that the idea of the dying and reviving God, Baldur, Adonis, Bacchus, similarly moved me, provided I met it anywhere except in the Gospels. Now, the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. So for Lewis, this conversation with Tolkien and Dyson was pivotal because what his two friends showed him was that he could connect the intellectual understanding of the doctrines of Christianity with his emotional, imaginative engagement with stories, with the myths of the dying and reviving God that had so gripped his imagination. And it was this combination of reason and imagination that allowed Lewis to become a Christian, as he did shortly thereafter, and to become a Christian as a whole person. That was the first story. Now, the second story is my own. I also, like Lewis, am an adult convert to Christianity. Unlike Lewis, I then became a Catholic a few years later. But many points of our journey are very similar. Now, I was not raised in a Christian family. I grew up in a non-religious family, no Bible in the house, never went to church. You know, Easter was chocolate bunnies, not the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't an anti-Christian household, but it was pretty thoroughly not Christian. Now, there's one key factor of my childhood that made a huge difference, and that was that I loved to read. As a little girl, I read myths, fairy tales, fantasy, and most importantly, I came across C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia and Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbits, and those would change everything. Not right away, but eventually. And now what Lewis and Tolkien did for me, reading them as a girl, was to show me a Christian vision of the world. Now, I want to be clear, I did not know that it was a Christian vision of the world. I had absolutely no idea whatsoever that Aslan had any relationship to Jesus at all. It actually wasn't until my 20s that I cottoned on to this. I was angry with Lewis for a little bit. How dare he put this Christian stuff in my beloved books? Um, but at the time, I just took it in. And especially in Middle Earth, I really had this glimpse of what I would later understand as the Catholic understanding of the world, a place of beauty, but also a place of brokenness. And that vision really moved me deeply, although I didn't know why. And these became seeds planted in my imagination that would grow many years later. Now, later on, I went on, finished my education, did my PhD in English literature, um, studied actually Tolkien and other fantasy writers, got my first teaching job full-time. So I began to teach the great poets, the great authors, many of whom 
to my annoyance as an atheist, were Christians. Because at this point in my life, I was still an atheist. I'd become an atheist in my 20s, and I was convinced that Christianity was false. But I had to recognize that these authors, these, these poets, were so powerful and so compelling. So even though intellectually I didn't believe in anything that Christianity taught, didn't believe in God, uh, certainly didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I found myself drawn in to say, you know, Tolkien, Hopkins, Lewis, all these great authors, maybe this thing that they believe is a little more interesting than I gave it credit for. And so I began to ask some questions. And, oh boy, that got me into some trouble because my atheism couldn't stand up to actually addressing the evidence, the philosophical, the historical, the moral arguments for Christianity. So pretty quickly, when I actually started examining the evidence, I realized that God existed. I became a theist, like Lewis. But like Lewis, I had a two-step conversion. Because I discovered that although the evidence for the resurrection was extremely convincing historically, I just couldn't grasp the meaning of the incarnation. It seemed to me almost impossible to grasp that the God who created the cosmos, the galaxies, could become a man, an ordinary human being, ate dinner and talked to his friends. How could this be? But the evidence was so compelling. So what I did, very deliberately, was I went back to the Chronicles of Narnia, and I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Horse and His Boy. And in re-encountering Aslan, the lion who is the embodiment of Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia, that imaginative encounter showed me something of what it might be like for God to become man. And when I was able to make that connection with Aslan, I could make that connection with God. And the last barrier to my own faith fell, and I was able to become a Christian. Now, later on, Tolkien and other writers such as Chesterton and Hopkins also helped guide me into the Catholic Church. And so we can see here that the imagination, both for Lewis and for myself, is extremely valuable for helping people to come to the faith. And I know this, as I've shown you, from the inside. But how does it work? How does the imagination help people come into the faith? And that's the question that we're going to be exploring in this course so that we can help other people to make this same journey and so that we can guide others and help them as they encounter the truths of our faith. So coming back to this question of imaginative apologetics, let's talk about what those words mean. Because we're going to be talking a lot in this course about language and meaning, so it makes sense that we're going to start with our very first terms. So first, what do we mean by apologetics? Now, a lot of people have just the wrong impression about apologetics. First of all, they think it has something to do with apologizing. No, it doesn't. It actually comes from the Greek word defense, meaning to make a case for something. But then they might also think, oh, apologetics, it means arguing. It means getting into, you know, nasty arguments with people and telling them how wrong they are. Uh, no, it's not about that either. 
Um, that's just being a jerk. <laughs> and it's not just for specialists either. It's not just for people who are trained in apologetics as an academic discipline. No, apologetics that is the defense of our faith, is for everyone. And we have that mandate straight from Scripture. 1 Peter 3.15, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And that giving a reason is what all of us are called to do. Now, apologetics as a whole discipline is both negative and positive. Let me explain what I mean. By negative, I mean it can be, it's defensive, it's addressing objections to the Christian faith. Things like, well, Jesus never existed. Well, to say, well, you're wrong. Actually, Jesus did exist. Let me show you how we can know that to be true. That's a defensive mode of apologetics. Very necessary. There's also the positive form of apologetics, which is the creative form, the making a positive case, not just answering the objection, but saying this is why we believe this is genuinely fully true. Now, apologetics needs both of those things. Not only does it need both the defense and the positive presentation, but we also need to realize that it's needed pretty much everywhere. We tend to think of sharing our faith as something that we do outside the church, for non-believers, for people who have fallen away from the church. And we do. We do need that. But we also need apologetics inside the church for us as Catholics to be strengthened in our faith, to know that we really do have the truth and know why it's true. And this strengthens us in our walk with the Lord, as well as helping us to help others to know him. So there we have apologetics the defense of the faith, the presentation of the truth of our faith, which is important for everybody, for ministers, for pastors, obviously, for ministry leaders, for teachers, RCA folks, catechists, yes, but also for parents, for teachers, for anybody who's ever had a friend, a colleague, a child ask them, how do we know that's really true? Apologetics is for everybody. And that's the approach we're going to take in the rest of this course. So that's apologetics. But what about imaginative apologetics? Why do we need an imaginative approach to apologetics? Well, quite frankly, in the 21st century, we Catholics have a really serious and unique challenge. To begin with, we live in a post-Christian culture. And by that, I mean that Everybody has heard of Christianity. This is not a new concept. Anybody can walk into a bookstore and get a Bible. People have heard about Jesus. And frankly, a lot of people think it's old news, whatever. So we don't have that freshness of the first evangelists coming to people who've never heard of the resurrection. We have a harder challenge of saying, you've heard of this, but maybe you haven't heard it correctly. Maybe you haven't heard it fully. But then we also have the unique problem of information overload. Because we live in a culture that is drenched with information. The internet, YouTube, libraries, books, social media. We have a wealth of information at our fingertips. And in fact, we have so much that it's overwhelming. Anything we could possibly want to know about ever 
we can just take a click on our smartphone and we've got more information, true, false, <laughs> who knows what, all mixed up at our fingertips. And so honestly, in the face of this deluge of information, a lot of people simply turn off and quite naturally, it's too much, too much stuff. So we have to cope with the fact that access to information isn't the problem. People have access to phenomenally good defenses of the faith, better than any other time in history. That's not why they're not listening to us. So we have to ask, given that there's so much information, given that people know about the idea of Jesus, why are we not having a tremendous revival of the Christian faith? What's going on? Well, to be honest, most people just aren't terribly interested. <laughs> they don't really care. And frankly, this is a lot harder to deal with than outright disbelief or argument. How do we deal with that? That's the challenge. Now, the reason I think that people aren't interested partly is overload. They don't find this interesting because they've got a lot of competing things jostling for their attention but also partly because the concepts that we're presenting aren't meaningful to them. Note the examples that I had for Lewis and for myself about Christian concepts needing to become meaningful before they could have an impact. And that, I think, is the key problem of our age. People hear the words that we use, words like sin, resurrection, prayer, heaven, what do these words even mean? I mean, take the word sin, for instance. That is a word <laughs> that really means all sorts of different things. And we're going to come back to that later in this course. But if you look at advertisements, you could look around and see advertisements for chocolate cake, which is sensationally good. <laughs> well, in a culture where sin is used as part of a description for a delicious chocolate cake... That word really doesn't mean what we mean when we talk about sin and hell and the need for confession. And we have to understand that because if we don't understand that meaning gap, we're just going to talk past people and they're, they're not going to understand us and we're not going to understand why they don't understand us and they will just be completely frustrated. So what we need to do in our current apologetics endeavor is that we need to be creating meaning and we need to be correcting false meanings. Only when people understand the meaning of the words that we're using and only when those meanings are correct will our conversations about our Lord Jesus Christ, the church, sin, heaven, hell, all of the depth of our faith, only then will people actually listen to us. That's what we need to do. And that is where the imagination comes in. The imagination is key for having ideas and experiences become meaningful. And that element of meaning is what will allow us to share the faith in a powerful and effective way. And that's what we're going to be exploring in the next few lessons in this course. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that sample lesson from our Word on Fire Institute course titled Imaginative Apologetics. You can join the Word on Fire Institute by visiting wordonfire.institute. That's the website, wordonfire.institute. You'll find a community of over 15,000 other Catholics who are learning theology, philosophy, apologetics, evangelization from some of the brightest minds in the church. When you sign up, you not only get access to all sorts of great video courses like the one you just heard a sample from, but you also get access to all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs. You also receive the Evangelization and Culture Journal four times a year. So it's an amazing value and I highly encourage you to sign up. You just heard lesson number one from Dr. Holly Ordway's course on imaginative apologetics, but there are six other lessons in this course which you can get immediate access to. They cover things like how to create meaning, how to correct distorted understandings of meaning, and how to cultivate people's imagination so that they open a space to understand the gospel. So check it all out at wordonfire.institute. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. Mm -hmm.